It's an experience that happens from time to time for readers of scripture. You're reading a familiar passage, something you know almost by heart, and suddenly you notice that something is missing. An aspect of the text, a detail of some kind, something you thought was an integral part of the passage, simply isn't there. You read the passage again, and every place you look for it, it keeps on not being there. I had a memorable experience of this kind quite a while ago when I, when I was studying mountain scenes and mountain imagery in the Gospels. Ever since I was a child, I had sung hymns with lines such as, there is a green hill far away, or free to all a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. Along with Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, Mount Calvary had been a fixture of my spiritual geography since the beginning. So I reread the crucifixion accounts in the four Gospels, fully expecting to find some indication that Christ's crucifixion had taken place on a mountain, or at least on a hill of some kind. I looked for it, but there it wasn't. To be sure, as I looked further, I was able to discover uh, why this interpretation emerged and, and how it eventually became such a fixed element in Christian tradition that it got woven back into our reading of the gospel accounts themselves. I don't have time to say much more about this development here, though it does connect in a significant way with our passage this morning, a passage that represents another instance of the same phenomenon. Here, of course, the detail that just keeps on not being there is the figure of Satan himself. The story of what Christians came to describe as the fall is deeply embedded in Christian tradition and in the narrative framework within which we read scripture. And in this story, Satan plays a central role. A fallen angel and now the arch enemy of God, Satan is determined to thwart God's purposes in the newly created world and the place of human beings within it. And so he disguises himself as a serpent, unsettles Eve's simple trust in God's word, beguiles her into eating the forbidden fruit along with Adam, and thus succeeds in plunging the human race and the whole created order into a morass of sin, guilt, punishment, and death. To tie in that th thread that I left dangling a moment ago, I might mention that in a subplot to this story, the site of Adam's burial was a mountain, a mountain that later also served as the site of the crucifixion of Christ, the new Adam. Our focus text for today's sermon is verse 15, part of the climactic confrontation scene in which God calls all three characters to account. Here God has this to say to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. In the context of the more developed story of the fall, this verse is read as a preliminary announcement of the gospel. The seed of the woman is taken to be Christ and the blow to the head of the serpent is taken to refer to the crushing defeat that would be administered to Satan and his evil host through Christ's death and resurrection. It's a grand and magnificent story told with compelling force in classic works 
such as Milton's Paradise Lost and Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, and deeply embedded in Christian consciousness through the countless retellings and mystery plays, stained glass windows, sermons, commentaries, Sunday school lessons, and so on down through the centuries. So much so that when we read the bare words of the passage, it's the whole grand narrative that often takes shape in our mind. Just as some people hear the strains of Handel's Messiah as they read some passages in Isaiah. But when we focus our attention on the bare words of the passage, a lot of this falls away. The adversary appears simply as one of the field animals that God created, the craftiest to be sure, but without much of a hint of anything more. And the judgment seems to be more a matter of ongoing mutual enmity than of any decisive victory of one over the other. And Satan is nowhere to be seen. Is this just one of those times then when a serpent is just a serpent? Is this just a curious story about a talking snake? Well, hardly. The story, after all, deals with fundamental and perennial human issues. The knowledge of good and evil, life and death, mortality and immortality, God's commandments and human disobedience, toil, pain and suffering, marriage, childbirth, and lines of descent. Further, unlike the story of Balaam's talking donkey, tucked away in some obscure spot in the book of Numbers, this story stands at the head of the canon and deals with the progenitors of the whole human race. The story then is hard to ignore. The issues it touches on are part of the warp and woof of human existence, as each of us knows all too well. And so in the ongoing experience of God's people, as the perception of God's purposes in history developed, uh, as awareness of the powers of evil became more pressing, and as the hope of final redemption came more clearly into view, it is not surprising that faithful readers would return to this passage and wrestle with it in light of the unfolding story of God, Israel, and humankind. To be sure, in the rest of Israel's scriptures, there is very little interest in the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam is mentioned only a small handful of times, and Eve not at all. In the period leading up to the time of Jesus, though, Jewish interpreters began to pay more attention to the passage. Curiously enough, one thing that caught their attention was the ability of the serpent to talk. Both Josephus' Antiquities and the Book of Jubilees contain the little detail that all the animals in the Garden of Eden could speak. Uh, in Hebrew, uh, the author of uh, Jubilees seems to imply. But then they lost the ability as a result of the serpent's action. More important for our purposes, though, is the fact that Jewish interpreters became increasingly interested in the figure of Satan and the story of Adam and Eve. And many of the elements that appear in the full-blown Christian story are found already in Jewish interpretation of scripture. While the full-blown story emerges only in the second century, several of the elements are found in the New Testament as well, probably informed by Jewish exegesis. 
I'm thinking here, for example, of Revelation 12 and 9, which speaks of that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Or Romans 16, 20, where Paul tells his readers that the God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. We are interested in this passage this morning because of its place in the Protestant Reformation and its importance for the Reformers. I think it's fair to say that while the Reformers took issue with some of the more recent Roman Catholic interpretation, for the most part, they simply carried over the interpretation of Genesis 3.15 that had developed in the early centuries of the church. But there is one aspect of Calvin's interpretation that caught my attention and that I want to mention. If my sermon has an element of exhortation and edification, here it is. In the traditional interpretation of the verse, the reference to the seed of the woman was taken as a straightforward reference to Christ and thus to his definitive triumph over Satan and the powers of sin and death. While Calvin says that he would be happy with this interpretation, he feels that it does too much violence to the plain sense of the text. As we have already noted, the verse seems to speak not of a single decisive victory, but of an ongoing struggle, and not of a single descendant, but of a whole line of descendants. Of course, says Calvin, we who live after the coming of Christ can be assured of the final victory over sin and death because of Christ's death and resurrection. But he reads the verses placing the emphasis elsewhere. First, on the idea that both the ongoing struggle and the ultimate victory has to do with the human race itself, events in which the human race participates. And second, that the victory is not yet complete. The struggle with the powers of sin and death continues. While I don't think Calvin was familiar with Jewish exegesis on this point, it's worth noting that his reading is similar to the one that appears in the Targum Pseudo-Jonathan on this verse, except that in Calvin's reading it is Christ rather than the Torah that gives God's people the ability to tread on the head of the serpent and to resist the powers of sin and death. This, I think, places the emphasis where it should be. The forces of evil and the death-dealing powers of sin are too evident and too pervasive for Christians to retreat in any simple, triumphalistic and self-serving form of the gospel. While victory is assured, we are called to engage faithfully in the ongoing struggle and to anticipate a victory in which the human race itself, with Christ at its head, is a full participant. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen. <laughs>